0: We've had quite a last eight weeks or so on the topic of prayer. And we're kind of in transition right now. And I want to, those of you that might be new or visiting, just to give you kind of a a rundown of what we've been doing and where we're going over the next uh, little season here. So at the beginning of the year, we delved into the Lord's Prayer. And elements like adoration, petition, intercession, perseverance, listening, warfare, all those elements of prayer, we, we kind of drew out of the Lord's Prayer and, and then we had, last week, a focus on living prayer. Uh, today, we're, we're going to focus on a concept that's called imaginative prayer, which I think is going to be the most fun, hopefully. And at the same time, we're, we're, we're also acknowledging that there's all sorts of different kinds of life in the realm of prayer that we haven't touched on. Um, you know, even in, in worship this morning, in closing worship, we, we uh, uh, through, through Matt and Kemi up here, t- talking about praying in the Spirit and then leading us into a time of, of corporate prayer and corporate response, and, and where, where there's, there's the, the room and space for, for those that, that, that have a sense of the Spirit being able to utter tongues, to be able to do that freely in worship, and then to give words that are, that are clear and directive and where, where it's up front, where we're going somewhere with it, right? Where it's not just a bunch of, randomness and chaos or whatever else so this is a type of place where we're also constantly kind of learning and experimenting uh, a number of weeks back we had kids that that would get words for 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 parents or for the congregation and for people whether it was through toys or through healing or through pictures there's just endless ways that the Lord speaks to us and I, I must say that I continually feel like I'm a novice when, when, my, when my own children seem to understand and get these things easier than, than I can. And sometimes I need to go back to the word. And I need the Lord to, to speak through, through vessels of idiocracy like Moses. So can we turn to Acts 7 and let the idiot that became a champion named Moses speak to us today. We go to Acts 7 for me really quick. And, and over the next several weeks, um, the Martinson family will be out of town next weekend, continuing to celebrate my wife's birthday. Um, if you haven't met my wife or don't know her well enough, one of the, the core elements of her past personality is, is uh, celebrating holidays, traditions, really anything she can celebrate. And so for her birthday, we tend to have multiple birthdays. And, uh one of them is going up to uh, Lake Arrowhead on the weekend. So we will not be here, but one of the amazing things about when we're not here is that nothing ever suffers. We have Christina Kale from SoCal School of Supernatural Ministry here next weekend. She, uh, every time she comes, she deposits, I, I really believe, like a, a, a mother word. Like when the house needs to hear mom speak, I feel like Christina Kale can come in and give us exactly what we need to align our hearts to where God's taking us and, and what he's opening us up for. So, so please prioritize next weekend. We're really excited about having her. Then we're going to transition into a series on relationship. And we feel that this year the Lord is going to, to, to mold us, connect us, and define us in the realm of relationship. And so we're really excited to start that series as well. So just giving you kind of some touch points on the coming weeks, on the coming weeks. This thing is off, way off. That's better. Thank you. It keeps moving on me. I feel like it's solid. And then it's like... There we go. That felt so good. Yes. Thank you, Michael. Wow. Mm. So, Acts, Acts 7. Uh, if you're not familiar with Acts 7, um, what's happening here is Stephen has is, uh, been appointed as a, a deacon, really, over the food distribution that the apostles... Uh, decided that they were being pulled away from the studying of the word uh, in order to, to pass out food. And I think sometimes we can try to, to identify with that, going like, oh, here, here's the more anointed part of ministry. And, and here even Stephen had to, to be given kind of like, you know, the cafeteria work. And the reality was it wasn't just Stephen. It was seven others, seven people along with Stephen that were appointed to be amongst the people And all it says about them is that they walked in power and full of the Holy Spirit. And that as they distributed bread, signs and wonders were breaking out among them. They were leading it. And they were the people that the religious leaders wanted to kill. It's a holy moment when you see that the first martyr isn't Peter. It's not Philip. It's not one of the well-known. It's not James and John. It's not one of the well-known disciples. The first martyr is Stephen who is over the food. It's amazing. And so I just want to point out one, one little thing. And, and this isn't really a, a sermon, a traditional sermon today. I, I want to I highlight some thoughts. And then I want to have the kids and some people we've asked to just pray over us, to release some stuff over us, and to have a good time with that at the end, on imaginative prayer. So chapter 7 does this. In verse 17 um, he starts, Stephen starts giving this sermon, and there's crowds, and this is likely not in a formal setting, it's, it's in one where he's kind of being, <laughs> about, about to be killed. And he starts talking about the forefathers, he starts, he starts what I call law-splaining. Have anyone been mansplained before, ladies? You can say yes, if you have been mansplained. Anyone today been mansplained, like on the way to church, Maybe? No one willing to admit that? It's okay. Good. That was an awkward laugh. That's fine. <laughs> mansplaining has been a... Uh, or what, what are the other kind of splainings that we, that we make fun of now in society? I think there's like a different, different thing for... I'm thinking of several. I'm now rambling on to a useless point. I was trying to find something less offensive than mansplaining. I feel like people get tense. Oh, he's political. But I call this Law-splaining. It's, uh, Stephen is, is kind of explaining the law to the people that are supposed to know the law. And they're highly offended at Stephen's law explaining. And he starts talking about Abraham and Moses. And he says this in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. If you know the story of Abraham and then Joseph getting into Egypt, if it's unfamiliar to you, just stay with me. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. They would not be kept alive. At this time, say this time, Moses was born. And he was, what does your translation say? Beautiful in the sight of God, mine says. Other translations uh, say he was no ordinary child, I think the NIV says. And he was brought up for three months in his his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Kind of a big deal. How does he go from basically going to be killed with the rest of the Israelites to being brought up in Pharaoh's house? He's saying this, and I like the summary here, because he's he's speaking to an audience that knows the story super well. Like, you probably know the story super well, right? The basket, the river, the Nile. Boom. Boom. Then, in verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. So when he's 40, he sees a brother, an Israelite, being abused by an Egyptian soldier, and he murders him when he's 40. The story then goes on, and then he's kind of cast out. Kind of. He is cast out. And then at 80, 40 years have passed. Look down at verse 30. And an angel appears to him in the wilderness at Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. And there came the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. The history of Israel cannot be separated from the voice of the Lord. So he's now 80, and he's finally getting commissioned back. Rewind um, a a couple verses. I want to highlight one other thing. I think I had it in this translation a little bit better. In verse 21, I'm going to read 20 again. It says, "At the time Moses was born, he was." NIV says, "He was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family." Verse 21 and 22. This is what I also want to point out. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in speech and action. Okay, a couple things to just point out there, and and then I'll try to make a nice mess of things. Uh, Moses was, was not an ordinary child, except that he was completely ordinary, wasn't he? He was just an Israelite, born in slavery and captivity. Why does Stephen call him not ordinary? Because Stephen is looking back through the gospel, back at Moses, and declaring him not ordinary. Declaring him beautiful in the sight of the Lord, as one translation says, well pleasing to God. Just like his creation, God says, I'm well pleased. The Father proclaims things that are not true yet over us. The other thing it says here that is meant for us to see that train of the Father's thought and the Father's voice is that it says, Moses was powerful in speech and action. That's a lie. Moses was a stuttering idiot. That's what happened at the burning bush. His big objection to God is how? I am not of strong speech, and I can't put a phrase together, let alone lead a million people out of slavery of 400 years. And the summary of his life, he was no ordinary child, and he was powerful in speech and action. What Stephen is saying is that this gospel that he's giving the religious leaders new eyes to see is meant to show them that the God that we all serve and intimately desire to know proclaims things over us and makes things out of our life that we're not so. And how the world remembers us and how the world will remember you has the potential. To have lies that God makes truth as summary statements of your life. I want to invite us to dream again today. I want the Father to be able to awaken what's inside of us. I believe the realities of who we are as, as sons and daughters of the King. We have tasted, I think most of us have tasted at some point in our life, potential that we're constantly aware that we're not living up to. And Maybe you're like me, and I feel like there are elements of my life and who I was created to be that lie imprisoned in my own soul. And part of the gospel... is that what Jesus reveals of the Father and what he culminates in all of human history, that he starts with Israel's history, is that those ordinary human beings that that can't even put a sentence together are those that transform nations, set captives free, and demonstrate the power of God in one surrendered life. This doesn't mean that we all have to have a vision of what nation that we're going to see set free out of slavery. But it does mean that what we actually believe about ourselves and what we're capable of, it gets released into a heavenly energy, a heavenly anointing, a heavenly voice. That goes far beyond just the daily monotony and routine of what we often find ourselves living in. I believe that's what Moses' life speaks to us. Have you known deep down in your soul that there was greatness imprisoned inside of you, that you couldn't set free? Moses is a testament to who God looks for. He testifies number one, God is not looking for champions to make champions. Peter was a loser fishing in his father's business that had been passed off by every rabbi in all of Israel. He becomes the first pope and the leader of the church. He couldn't even say that he was a follower of Jesus to a little girl by a fire. Thousands respond to the gospel weeks later because of a deposit in his soul that was being held captive that got set free. And what God has placed inside each of us isn't for us. It's for the world and for his glory to be manifested. I know those are big words, but sometimes we just have to do the little Christian thing. Well, it's not about a selfish thing for you. We, we need to say that. We need to acknowledge that, and that's great. But oftentimes the, the, what the church has told the rest of us, and what we tell each other, and we, we speak identity over us like, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, which is, there's truth in it, right? We, we have sin, the world is dark. If you identify as a sinner right now today, when the person of Jesus has taken up residence in you, you are declaring over yourself something that's keeping you captive. If you identify as a sinner every day of your life, how can you possibly live a life like Moses led. You cannot do it. That's incredibly positive news for us today. <laughs> we are not sinners. When we when we tell ourselves we're sinners, our message to the world is that you are sinners. They don't like that. <laughs> it's not about the fact that we're ignoring sin. I think sometimes the church then ignores the sin because we just want to give positivity all over the place. That doesn't work either. People are constantly aware of their own depravity. What they don't like is a church whose message is pointing out their crap instead of their gold. That doesn't have to ignore the depravity of sin. The entire kingdom of Israel, the entire nation in religious mindset of Israel was inundated with a concept of sin. Sin, 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 sin. And I think the church, we, we, are, we have that dynamic that is constantly at bay in our own lives, regardless of how much amazing training you've had since you got set free from that religious mindset. Someone say amen to that. Yeah, it's still a daily struggle. It's still a daily struggle for me. When I break connection with my Heavenly Father, the first thing I, re- I release over myself in my subtle self-speak is condemnation. It's speaking sinful type stuff over me. Like I, like I, I speak like I'm a screw-up. I, I, I'm not even saying them out loud. I'm thinking like, I could do so much better. I can't break free of this, whatever. Uh, I, could, I could do this more. 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 Heaviness, 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 heaviness. Oh, uh, why isn't the world coming to me for my light? because I'm a depressing darkness in my own puddle of imprisonment. This is these are moments in my life not every day. I just it's being raw and real. But when the church realizes that we're light, everything gets touched by that light. Everything. Everything. You're essential to the way that God has ordained bringing about his purposes in the earth. You are essential. Can we just speak a couple declarations over each other just right now? Can you close your eyes? God loves me. I am essential to God's purposes in the earth and in eternity. Holy Spirit. Spirit. You don't have to say that part. Holy Spirit. Just. (laughs) Maybe we needed a laugh. Holy Spirit, would you just gently release that reality? All right. Heads up. Because the reality is, is God doesn't need us from the perspective of he's God. He's chosen to build a system where what he desires for his creation cannot happen apart from you and I, the body, coming into the fullness of who we were created to be. And in that sense, we are essential. That has to take identity crisis and turn it into people who know who they are, full of identity truth. What you believe about who you are is the most important thing about you. Your kids need to see it, your spouse needs to see it, your mom needs to see it, your friends need to see it, your plumber needs to see it, your dry cleaner needs to see it. It's a big deal. And today we're going to get into the realm of how God speaks, but how the enemy lies, and that there's this place called our imagination that all of this takes place. And transformation takes place in that imaginative realm. I'm tempted to just go right into the the prayer part, but I want to say a couple more things. Yeah, go ahead and go get them if you could. We're going to have some kids help lead us. Okay, so Shakespeare said this, some, some men are born great, others attain greatness, still others have greatness thrust upon them. Some men are born great, others attain greatness, still some have greatness thrust upon them. I believe Moses had greatness thrust upon him. He wasn't looking for it. He almost tried to run away from it. But he responded. In his insecure, stuttering, lack of belief, faith. It was this big. What will you say, Lord, if you don't go with me? And he says, I am with you. I will go with you. And I feel like if we just had, again, That conviction that God was with us, his presence and his voice sustaining us, our lives could not live in prison any longer. You have an extraordinary destiny. Moses' story is going from no ordinary child to extraordinary, the ordinary to extraordinary. The Father's message is that you are extraordinary. He will take everything that's ordinary about you. And he will breathe life on it. And he will display heaven on earth through it. When history looks back on your life, what will it say? The Father wants to proclaim over you what was proclaimed over Moses. No ordinary child. Powerful in speech and action. And he wants to make the truth about you a lie. Because the truth is, is that we are born ordinary and with many flaws. And he wants to torment the tormentor with those truths and turn them into lies. So that what is said about our life is what was said about Moses. Moses. No ordinary child, powerful in speech and action. One of the keys to access this extraordinary destiny is our imaginations, as I've said. So real briefly, I want to turn to 2 Corinthians 3. And then I want to talk about imaginative prayer and let some of these gems bless us. 2 Corinthians 3 says, I'm going to jump right in the middle Uh, Verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 3 says this. Now, if the ministry... This is Paul speaking to a church in Corinth. And he says, Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters and stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Now, what happened was Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery into the wilderness. And then Moses has an encounter with God. And it says it was face-to-face encounter face-to-face, as a man speaks with a friend. Only Moses, out of all of Israel, have this encounter. This is after Israel forfeits their invitation to have that kind of encounter with the Father. They were afraid, and they say, Moses, you go to the Father for us. And and now Paul is talking about this ministry of the Spirit and this concept of glory. And it's a, it's a, it's a complex term. And I, just, I don't want us to get convoluted right now into figuring out how glory works and how how it works with speaking over me and doing all this. But just, just listen to this passage as the kids come in. Hi, buddy. As, as these kiddos come in, just, just, just hone in on this verse for, for just a couple seconds, these few verses. It says, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. It's going to say glory a lot, so just bear with the glory. Glory. Because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. That's a lot of glory. All you need to do is listen to this. Verse 12 to 15. Since we have such a hope. He gets at the main point is hope. When he's encouraging a church, it's hope. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face. So that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. So there's a veil, he's saying, over the people. It began all the way back with Moses, and only Moses was seeing. How God wanted a man to commune with him without a veil, without distance, without a divide. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, speaking of the people of Israel, that still read Moses, there's still a veil. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, kids, how many of you have the Holy Spirit? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> Why? Um, because Jesus is inside us, and He died for us. He did. That's good. That's good, Pastor Son's response. Okay. How many of you hear the Holy Spirit speak to you? Yeah? Good. Is it nice? Yeah. Yes. Is he ever mean? No. No, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So if anyone in here ever thinks God speaks mean to them, what should you tell them? Is it God? No. Nope. No. Hey, can we just receive that today? Okay. <laughs> So, okay, finally, imaginative prayer. Uh, I mentioned some thoughts of Greg Boyd last week. I want to I, I say this really quick just so we have an idea of what we're doing. Imaginative prayer is, is this. Uh, imaginative prayer takes place in our imagination. It's prayer focused on biblical truth, but we have to be intentional to differentiate between imaginative prayer and even the stuff of the New Age movement. I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, oftentimes, the New Age uses imagination to go to these kind of like shamanistic type journeys and so forth. That's a really fun topic. Maybe we'll do that at some point. But what we want to just, those of you that are maybe get like anxious whenever we get into the realm of the imagination, uh, this was God's idea to, to give us an imagination. We, we, when we talk about sin, The root of sin takes place in the imagination. The root of idolatry, of greed, of lust, of gluttony, of of any kind of of deep-rooted darkness takes place first in the imagination. So would not the place of gold, the place of life, the place of promise, the place where God speaks, the place where his word takes root and that we dwell on, meditate on, and live on, how would that not also be in our imagination? God wants our imagination. Through the imagination, he wants to bring transformation. So imaginative prayer is simply thinking about God in very concrete and vivid ways. The imagination doesn't need to be non-concrete and non-vivid. It's rooted in the biblical tradition. This is very biblical, historical, and good. What does the Bible say about this? Well, we just talked about 2 Corinthians, um, and I'll say something again about that in a second. But Psalm 27, we see David, he wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in his temple, and what kind of gazing is he talking about? He's talking about a physical scene or a spiritual scene. Huh? Which one? Well, Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's actually talking about spiritual scene. All this requires our imagination. And then here in 2 Corinthians 3 that I just read, Paul's talking about this veil over the minds of those who who do not have the Holy Spirit abiding in them and upon them. And the veil being removed, he talks about, is so that we can behold the glory. This glory that we saw even with Moses. The whole passage is about what goes on in our mind. And he identifies what we see in our mind as the absolute key to transformation. As we see the beauty and the glory of God in the face of Jesus, you take on that glory from one degree to another. And we always become what we see. So how is the imagination key to spiritual formation? It's the main place where we encounter God. Some call this the inner sanctum. When a person is not surrendered to Jesus, that inner sanctum is naturally dark. There's a veil. Jesus' message is that he removes the veil, and he gives capacity to transformation, and he releases light perfect love, perfect peace, perfect wholeness. So how do we guide people into that? I like the example that someone gave let's start with making a date with Jesus, and let's do that right now. Guess what? You have a date with Jesus, and it's this morning. The kids are going to lead us on this date, and we encourage you to make dates with the Lord Jesus Christ whenever you want. I prefer daily. You can do it as often as you want. There's no limit. So make a date with him. And then ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, help make Jesus, the person of Jesus, real to me right now. And then imagine Jesus speaking to you. Imagine him speaking the things that you know he's already said and the things that you need to know are true in that inner sanctum. You might want to print them out, write them out, speak them out, pray them out, proclaim them out. But the goal is to sense as vividly as humanly possible that Jesus is communicating truth to you, truth to your spirit, truth to your imagination. Many of us rarely experience, experience the truth we already know.